Hi, and welcome to The Rock's podcast. We are currently going verse by verse through the Gospel of Mark on Sunday mornings. We pray that these sermons encourage your faith. Now let's join Pastor Ross as we continue studying the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. All righty, good morning again. Welcome you back to your seats, and let's get settled in. An intriguing passage, very dramatic and very exciting and inspiring, awaits us this Palm Sunday. Well, let me tell you, calendar-wise, of course, it is Palm Sunday, but Bible schedule-wise for the church, we have passed um, Palm Sunday uh, a few weeks ago. It just so happens, the timing of uh, being in the Gospel of Mark Uh, And heading into Passion Week, we continued with our study, and we find ourselves as a church a little ahead of schedule. We are at already the end of Passion Week, already at the time of crucifixion. We have been uh, talking last time about the Garden of Gethsemane, and so what follows that uh, is awaiting us in Mark chapter 15. We're going to take a portion of that and take a look at two men who are crucified next to the Lord Jesus Christ, one on his left and one on his right. And through this exchange of words, this brief conversation, we see the gospel played out. We see our story right there. In fact, we see the heartbeat of Christianity displayed in just a few little verses. Let's ask the Lord for his blessing. Now, Heavenly Father, as we take a look at this very famous and well-loved scene, our Lord Jesus Christ languishing on a cross between two thieves, we pray for insight and uh, fresh, new understanding of the gospel, of God's love, and what awaits those who put their trust in Christ. It's in his name we pray, and all God's people said. We usually call him the thief on the cross, don't we? But I would like to rename him and call him the luckiest man in the world. Because we've all heard stories, you know, close calls and narrow escapes where, you know, tragedy was just seconds away and then somehow the disaster was averted at the very last minute. Uh, We even have a saying, we dodged the bullet, you know. I was reading an article about those who have experienced close calls and narrow brushes with death and have survived. I like those kinds of stories, especially when there's a happy ending. And I was reading about one uh, from United Airlines Flight 232, a DC-10 that crash-landed in Iowa back in 89. And amazingly, half on board, half of the passengers survived. And it all came down to the position on the plane, which seat they were in determined really whether they would have a chance to live or die. Uh, One of the survivors said, uh, so lucky to be on row 10, it gave me the best chance to make it. Now, it wasn't the thief's providential position on a plane, but his providential placement on a cross that made the thieves, both of them, the luckiest men alive of all the crosses. They crucified a lot of criminals on a lot of different days for a lot of different reasons. But to wind up crucified within arm's reach and where you could have a conversation with the Son of God 
the God man on a cross bearing the sins of the world to end up on his left and his right. Wow. Right next to the emergency exit itself, if, if you would. Wow, the savior of the world hanging between them, dying to give them safe passage through death and into eternal life. Both convicted felons will have equal access because they're on row 10. They have the best opportunity. And before we even start, I'll just tell you, you know, what makes the sermon fun or interesting or effective is where, what does this have to do with me? Well, you're on row 10. You were raised in a quote-unquote Christian nation where there are Christian churches on every corner. You weren't born 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago in the Middle East somewhere. Wow, you were born 2,000 years after this deed was done and explained and recorded and preached upon. You're on row 10. You know the gospel better than most of the world. You have greater access, but still, just because you're on row 10 doesn't mean everybody makes it. They just have the greatest opportunity. We know what God's will in the matter is, is that none perish and everybody come to the knowledge of the truth and be safe. So this morning, as we see this beautiful picture of the gospel, the heartbeat of Christianity, uh, this famous dramatic encounter, sort of abbreviated in, in Mark, right? Um, because that's what Mark does. He just abbreviates. But thankfully, Luke includes the conversation that they have. So we're going to blend those texts together so that we can see the beauty of the gospel, how Christ can offer to anybody who hears his word and believes in him, He says, whoever believes will have eternal life. You will not come into judgment, but you will have passed from death to life. We see one person soften and receive, and one person hears the same words. He's got the same access, but he hardens and rejects. We watch it all play out before us. Let's take a closer look at two criminals on row 10. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right, one on his left. Those crucified with him, those two, there's only two, those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Hey, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us too. But the other criminal rebukes him saying, don't you fear God? He says, since you're under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth today, you will be in paradise with me. Let's leave that up there for a little bit while we get ourselves situated. As these three men languish in death, the man in the middle, of course, is more than a mere man because he is born of a woman, a virgin, but he is conceived of the Holy Spirit. He is 100% God, the second person of the Godhead, And 100% like you and me, a human being. And so as these three men languish in death before us, we see so much about the gospel. We see two men, you know, both of them begin estranged. Now, this is something that lifelong Christians overlook. Matthew's gospel says that both robbers s plural. Both robbers begin by heaping insults upon him. You only have two robbers. There's one and two. And it says even in Mark that those crucified with him, both 
were beginning at the time at 9 a.m. on Good Friday, they started abusing, verbally speaking, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have somebody with a change of heart. They both started as unbelievers, like we have. We start as children of Adam and Eve. We are children of transgressors, and we prove that when we transgress, that we are just like our mother and our father, Adam and Eve, and we are born estranged from God because that's how we came into this world as children of Adam and Eve. Born into Adam's race by one man's sin and disobedience, the many were made sinners. And that's how sin and death came into this world. But here we are looking right in the middle there of Christ. By one man's obedience, he will reconcile many all who believe in Christ will have an opportunity to be reconciled to him. And so we're just going to see, take a look at this, and we're going to see as one man is going to avoid a tragedy and a Christless eternity, we're going to see the other one for, go from uh, an appointment with hell to a promise uh, for heaven that's incredible, and it happens, <laughs> wow, right at the last second. Four important things grabbed my attention as I looked at this text. I see, uh, number one, an initial ridiculing of the thieves, the ridicule of both of them. Number two, a sudden repentance of one of them, for whatever reason. I has a change of heart, that's what the word means. Number three, then we hear his simple request to be remembered. And then we wrap up with Jesus' promised reward of paradise. There's a lot here. So let's get underway with the ridicule and rage of these robbers. And uh, they seem bent on both of them. They really want to work at it right there. Hard-hearted, irreligious, with, without hope and without God in this world. And really, on your deathbed, as you're gasping, honestly, that's just not the right time to have that kind of attitude. And so let's isolate the, the first uh, couple verses. They crucified the two robbers, one on the right, one on the left. Now we see that they're both uh, hostile toward the Lord. One of the criminals who's hanging there is especially uh, going for round two or round three, and it says, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. And so we're going to start here with the ridicule. And so the thing about the mocking and the scoffing and the insults is that it's part of the package plan that Jesus had to endure by taking the wrath of God and becoming a curse for you and for me. It wasn't just the agony of the excruciating, which comes from the word crucifixion, excruciating. It wasn't just that. It was the becoming a curse and the separation uh, from God the Father as he bore the wrath that was meant for sinners upon himself. But included in the package plan was mocking and scoffing and verbal abuse, which just kind of throws salt into the wounds. Now, if Jesus didn't find it something uncomfortable and hurtful, why would he even list it? You know, sometimes we think, well, he's the son of God. He can take it. Who cares about mocking? He could just shut it off. But he's a human being. And the mocking and the scoffing and the verbal abuse mattered. And it was really tearing into him. And the thing that it, knowing it was going to come, he knew it was going to come. And he, and he says, I know these things. He, he, he told them earlier in Mark and says, listen, he takes them aside and says, we're going up to Jerusalem. Everything the prophets have said about the son of God will be fulfilled. He'll be handed over to the Romans. And he says, I will be mocked, insulted. There you go. And spit upon. They'll flog me and kill me, and on the third day I will rise. Just because, you know, sometimes we say, 
To be forewarned is to be forearmed, right? You, you can know that somebody's going to kick you when you're down or your best friend's going to betray you. Somebody could let you know, hey, heads up. Somebody, you can tell when somebody's getting ready to spit on you, but does that mitigate the suffering when the abuse starts to fly and the spittle is headed your way? So what it does, it doesn't, Jesus' foreknowledge of these mockings and says, doesn't decrease his suffering. What it does is it increases my admiration and my love for him. He knew it was coming. He agonized in the garden about it so much that he sweat drops of blood over this kind of thing. And then he said, but nevertheless, it's the only way out of love for guys like these two thugs The word to describe them as robbers means armed robbers. And to be executed because of your robbery means they killed somebody. The kinds of thugs that go into a a 7-Eleven and empty their guns into a little Vietnamese woman behind the register for $200 and a bottle of vodka on the way out. That's the kind of guys that are up there and on top of their own terrible crimes. And as they're dying, they heap abuse on the only hope that they have, the love of God poured into a human body to become a sacrifice for those very crimes they committed. And they yet abuse and mock him. The thing that gets me every time is how willingly, he says, I know it's coming, but I will, will." nobody takes my life. This isn't like something that, whoops, what happened? The bad guys are winning. He says, I am in charge and I willingly lay down my life on the good shepherd in love and I lay down my life for my sheep. And he does that. Get a load of Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 6. I have it for you. Here's a prophecy 700 years before he shows up in Bethlehem. He says, I offered my back to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I didn't hide my face from the mocking and the spitting. He knew it. 700 years and earlier that it was all going to come down. And he says, I offered it because it was necessary to overlook our offense and see our need of reconciliation for God's justice to be satisfied by pouring out his wrath upon that kind of behavior. So he said, pour it on me. I've got a life to offer. He wasn't a fully, just uh, only, I should say, a human being. If he were, he couldn't pay for your sins. He has sins of his own. He can't offer his own life because he's got his own. How can one bankrupt guy say, hey, I'll bail you out, buddy? We needed somebody rich with a sinless life, with something to offer. So he said, put all their sins on my account. And that's why he has to cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because all of your sins and all of mine were laid on him and God the Father's going to judge him because he's just. And now that they've been paid for, he's free to do as he wills. And what he wants to do is have mercy on whosoever will believe in his son. And he's free to do that injustice because your sins have been paid for. Where's the injustice? Where's the favoritism? There is none. Jesus drank that cup down to its dregs, including if you're the son of God, Mr. Savior, isn't that your title? Isn't that your title? Your title is Savior. Get busy, man. Save yourself. And then, you know, if you wouldn't mind, us too. Like, that's going to happen. That he can endure that? From guys like them? For a good guy, somebody might dare to die. But for a man like that, who has left a shop owner 
in a pool of his own blood with a knife sticking out of him so that he could get a few shekels to endure from that mouth? Come on off the cross. You know, you saved others. You can't save yourself. Wow. You know, the Psalms say they sharpened their tongues like swords and aimed cruel words like deadly arrows. That's from Psalm 63 and verse 3. The sad part about that psalm, and you can go back to our verses, is where David is saying, save me from men who hide in the shadows and aim their bitter words of slander and fire their poison darts into my soul. Save me from those men. And that's a prayer that God the Father cannot answer for Jesus. He must drink that cup down all the way. Every last sin, every last insult. You're a glutton, they said. You hang out with harlots because you frequent them. Your best friends are tax collectors because you're a low life like them. You're a drunk. Those are scriptures. That's not from me. Those are scriptures. That's what they call them. And yet he lays there and offers himself and says, put it on me. There's no other way. That puts the amazing in amazing grace. We need a different word than amazing. We need to inject that with a thousand steroids. And is that what you do? I think steroids shrink things. I don't know. I'm not a doctor. I just play one on TV. <laughs> so they're hurling their insults. The chief priests are there. Oh, I, you know, Mark tells us they're below. He's getting it from every angle. Done with the mocking. The people are, quote, wagging their heads, doing that thing to him. Wow, he's dying. Wagging their heads, saying, You destroyed the temple, said you're going to rebuild it in three days, doing that thing. Wow. And then they say, uh, He saved others, he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now so that we might see and believe. Silly rabbits. He can't come down. He can't come down because that would shut the door, bar it, and shut you out of eternal life forever. You'd have no hope. He can't come down. They're tempting him to do something that would damn their own souls forever. Come on down. No, no, no. He can't come on down because he is paying for the way to the Father's house because he thinks there might be one who has a change of heart, who says to himself, dear God, what have I been doing? I've been playing games. I know the gospel. I grew up in a Christian home. I'm all over the place. Wasting my life playing games with God. Dear Lord, have mercy on me. And because he endures and doesn't come down, that person, that wretch, has a way out of an immediate disaster upon impact and their sorry death. Amen. He stays on because he's thinking... There may be somebody who has remorse who will turn like this guy. But the other criminal, what? Rebukes the guy who's on his second round of abusing Jesus. Don't you fear God since you are under the same sentence of death? We're punished justly. We're getting what we deserve, but this guy's done nothing wrong. Whoa. So welcome to going from ridiculing by uh, now to um, a change of heart, to repentance. And so let's talk about that. The word repentance means to, change, to have a change of heart. Now, the change of heart that is true biblical repentance is the whole body the whole life changes, right? 
It's not just saying, oh, I've got a change of heart or a change of attitude. That is proven out when the whole vessel writes itself. And so in other words, we don't have, this guy doesn't have to say, hey, I'm a believer now. Oh, we just need your words. We see a new affection for somebody you were just cursing. We, we see some courage uniting your life with somebody who's taking abuse, which is going to open you up to it. You don't think the other thief said, oh, wow, man, you're drinking the Kool-Aid. Oh, Mr. Holier Than Thou, why did you tell Jesus about the shopkeeper? You don't think so, but that's what faith does. That's what repentance does. It says, I'm on his side, no matter what. I'm on the side of truth. I can't be on anything else, even if it's going to cost me. And it does cost to stand with Jesus because he's an object of rejection. The world doesn't embrace Jesus or his teachings. To say you're a Christian today, it takes a lot of guts. And it took a lot of guts for him as well. What is going on with this guy? First, you're yelling at Jesus and tearing into him, and now your eyes are opening, your conscience is speaking, your ears are unstopped so you can hear your own conscience. The stone-cold heart is now strangely warmed, and you're filled with this new wonder and these feelings, and you're kind of trying to figure it out. Remember? Do you remember? When it's like, what's happening to me? I'm becoming one of them, you know, right? I don't know how yours went. But mine was like, uh, you know, a week earlier, I had used the most terrible language. A bunch of street preachers were out on some corner somewhere, and I passed by and ridiculed the life out of them a week earlier. No one said, well, now that guy's close. (laughs) 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 Nobody said that. But then suddenly I hear this thing in my head. Why will you go to hell when you don't have to? And the room's going blurry. And suddenly I'm saying, yeah, that's a pretty good question. Why would I go to hell when I don't have to? And I started to cooperate with that drawing. And only a Christian knows that. You get drawn and you either cooperate or you don't. And you start cooperating and then boom, you're like, whoa. Your eyes open. Your heart starts feeling things. And look at him. He doesn't need to say, hey, I'm a believer. We we got your words, man. We see what's going on. That's what James says. Don't tell me you're a believer with your words. Show me you're a believer by your behavior. And we've got this behavior right here. What caused the change? He goes from blaspheming. The word in the Greek for the insulting is blasphemeo, which just takes all wrongdoing up a sacred notch that not only are you irreverent and evil, but you're doing it to God directly. And so how do you go from blaspheming to blessing the Lord? Well, wasn't, I don't know, the regal, gentle way that Jesus has taken it all? Was it a look in his eyes? Can you imagine? That's God on that cross. That is God. Make no mistake about that. Behind those brown eyes is the one who spoke and the universe leapt into existence. What was it like to look at the expression of God dying for the sins of the world? That ought to move somebody. (laughs) And apparently it moved him. Was it the prayer? Father, forgive them. They don't realize what they're well, did that just get in there? We know the Holy Spirit was working on both of them. But this guy seemed to cooperate. And for me, I think the big ticket item was the darkness at noon when the sun is highest and brightest. It stops shining for three hours. And of course it did. Of course it stopped shining. The light of the world, Christ, is languishing in death, surrounded by the darkness of every evil deed ever committed. The one who made the sun is gasping for air. Of course the sun is struggling to do its job. Its maker is in agony. 
And God is being gracious to everybody. Look, folks, this isn't a game. So darkness covers the whole land. Why? In love, because God is not willing that any perish. So he's saying, hey, the words, the gospel, the miracles, the walking on the water, the raising dead people, the opening eyes of blind men, that's not enough. How about if the lights go out at 12 noon? Will that help you? Well, it helped him. It pushed him over. And suddenly, as that other thief is going to have to lift up on his nail-pierced feet because the diaphragm doesn't work and they die from asphyxiation, he has to push himself up, he gets his ear, and the bad dude is going to use his last few breaths to rail against the Lord. And before our brother in Christ knows what he's doing, out comes a defense. For the sake of the friend, the thing, do you realize what you're doing? You're dying. Do you want to go out without respect for God who is in charge of heaven and hell and this kind of thing? This is a paraphrasing, of course. And then he says, we deserve this. He doesn't. See, the innocence of the Lord. Now, this guy, he lives in Jerusalem. Jesus has been in Jerusalem a lot. He's heard the gospel. He's heard Jesus, as is often the case when somebody has heard in earlier times and then through circumstances, it all seems to come together and their eyes open up. That happens a lot. And it probably happened here. And so a little mix of fear, guilt, loneliness, shame, and remorse all gets together and he finds himself defending the Lord. Man, you're dying. You know, you really want to go out this way? Now, different souls respond differently to God in desperate straits, like this thief who hardens his heart and wants to go out with one last punch to God. I was at UCSF, most of you know, 15 years ago, I had a bone marrow transplant. I almost died, but I survived. No, amen to that. <laughs> I was in a, a room of collective chemo patients, and in the bed next to me, a doctor came out, and I couldn't help. We were so close. I heard what he said to him. He said, I'm so sorry to have to tell you. We're sending you home. There's nothing more UCSF can do. There are some trials here and there, but I think you need to really kind of... And he lowered his voice, you know, kind of put your, uh, what is it, life in order kind of speech. So he left the room. I'm, I'm laying there. I get up out of the bed, pull my little cord, cords with me, my pole, and I go over and I say, dude, man, oh, that was hard news. I said, listen, I'm a pastor. I just want to share a little hope for you. He says, in big rage, fat red face with veins bulging, don't talk to me about God. I will die the way I lived. And I said, dude, he just told you that's going to be soon. You know, you, do you really want it? And he's interrupting me with expletives and all of that. And I'm like, okay, backing up. I was on my best behavior. First of all, I was sick. I was sick. I was humbled by it all. I wasn't coming on strong at all. I was like tiptoeing over there like, are you sure this is a good move? Oh, I was so terribly enraged. Now, on the other hand, uh, just a little while ago, I, was at a, I often am in hospitals. That's my job. I saw a family I've never seen before in front of a NICU and I went in, uh, I went, I saw them crying. And the doctor just come out and the wife says, there's no brain activity on the baby. And the husband falls apart. They both fall apart. Grandma's sitting there with their little one, but the baby's away from them, right? So they're sobbing and looking down at the ground. I'm standing there. It's just me and them. So I go over and I sit down and I put my arm around the guy. And I said, hey, I'm a pastor. Can I pray? He goes, please. So I prayed, and both of them with tears, and Grandma, oh, thank you, God, 
must have sent you here to give us hope. And the guy's like, oh, I've been thinking about God lately. How strange. And I need to get, I need to, to, to give my life over. I need to, to start paying attention to him. Thank you so much. Just over and over again. And I said, oh, it's so easy. And I shared the gospel. I said, what you're saying right here is enough for him. What is the difference between guy A and guy B? They're both on row 10. They both got the emergency exit going, come on, come on, this way to life, this way to life. And one says, no, I'd rather be dead. And the other one says, oh, yes, that's what I That's the mystery. Heaven will be filled with us, but not with everybody. And it won't be because of him. He will say on that great day, thy will was done. He is not going to force anybody through the door. He's going to give us that great opportunity. And so this dude is repenting. Uh, John, I love what he says. He, he, you know, he believes Jesus is who he says he is. He has affection for Christ. He's defending him. He's acknowledging his own guilt. He's not excusing it, justifying it, blaming, mitigating. And he says, I deserve to die. So he knows enough about Jesus and he knows about, about himself. Now listen, John Calvin said this. About wisdom that we can possess, truly, all the wisdom that we can know divides into two parts, knowing God and knowing ourselves. Then you get everything else. In other words, if you know Jesus is Lord and that you're an undeserving sinner, you got it. You got it. That's enough. And then what comes after that is a request. Since you're the Lord and I'm an undeserving sinner and you came to save people like me, I've got a request. So we're at the third R. We've gone from ridiculing to repenting. Now a request, genuine repentance gives rise to saving faith every single time. Here's the gist of what he's saying. If you allow me to paraphrase Jesus, save me a spot in heaven. <laughs> Save me a spot in heaven. Listen to this faith, people. When you're wearing your crown and when you're seated on your throne ruling the universe, think kindly of me. That's a lot of faith to have in that moment. A couple things you gotta love here. Number one is that he calls what he calls the Lord. He, he turns from his friend and all of that nonsense. And he looks over and he says, Jesus, I don't know why that moves me so much. He just uses the name that we love. He just turns in and says, Jesus, I know you, who you are. And when you get to that place of yours, just remember me. He's just asking for mercy. He certainly doesn't want him to remember everything about him, right? Don't remember what I did like three days ago, right? He's saying what's captured in one of the Psalms. It says, remember, O Lord, your compassion and your loving kindness, for they've been of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your loving kindness. Remember me for your goodness sake, O Lord, is what he's saying. Remember me through the filter of the death that you're dying on my behalf and the compassion, the love that you have for sinners and losers who deserve to die like me. Remember me through all of that. Remember me because you're good. Remember me because you came to seek and save people like me. Remember me. Forgive me. Pardon my crimes. Let me off the hook. Overlook my faults and see my greatest need. And he's gonna say, he's gonna, he's gonna grant him that, but based on what? I mean, dude, what what? 
You haven't done a thing. What, how are you going to, every other religion is going to say, if you want that, you better get busy. You better get praying. You better get serving. You better get giving. You better get holy. You better get the 10 steps of this and the commands of that and the eight paths of this. Instead, the gospel, the good news is Jesus is getting busy and Jesus is already gasping because he's out of breath because of the work he's doing on our behalf. Good teacher, what must we do to do the works God requires? John chapter six, and he says, here's the work. Believe the one he sent, period. (sighs) Don't have to do a thing. That's the horror of perishing is that you didn't have to do anything. You didn't have to be good. You can't be good. That's why you had to be crucified. The horror of hell is that it was free. It was everything for nothing. What do you say? Let me pull my wallet out and pay for your soul. Every last crime, every last sin, every last thoughtless deed, every secret of your heart paid. Let me pay your way. Wow. And then the changed life, the good deeds, the changed speech, all of that is a result of having obtained freely what we could have never earned, not an attempt to earn or merit anything. I never do a good thing to, oh, I hope God's happy with me now. I do good things now because I've received freely something I didn't deserve or could never earn in the first place. And now the good works and good deeds that we do, the reason we don't do this and we don't do that or we do this or the other thing is because I've been saved, not because I'm trying to get saved. That's a big difference, people. That's a big difference. And so I just love his faith. Jesus does not look like a king at the moment. And yet the sign says, this is his charge, king of the Jews. And so he looks at the sign and says, I, I, and I think I heard you say it once, you're a king. And he also believes in life after death. Look at this guy. When the Holy Spirit comes into your heart, you may be some thug, and suddenly you know stuff. I remember one thug who got saved, Pastor Adam. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't a thug. He was just a lost guy. And I remember telling him things. And once he got saved, he's all bouncing around me like a little pup, you know? And he's telling me this and telling me that, asking me that. And I'd answer the question and he'd say, how did I already know that? Every single time I'd, I'd say something, he goes, yeah, that's what I figured. How did I know that? How, did I, how does any of us know anything? He turns the light on and suddenly we get the basics. And this dude got the basics. And so... That's just a beautiful thing. When you come into your glory, King Jesus, don't forget about me. And Jesus has a quick and astounding reply as we wrap up this morning. Jesus answers, I tell you the truth today. You'll be with me in paradise. And so heartfelt requests prayed in faith will always bring a reward. And this one's out of this world. Now, how... How kind, I bet you've never seen this, how kind the Father has been to Christ, his Son. Think of it this way. Where are his disciples that he's been training for three and a half years? Well, Judas is dead because he killed himself after he betrayed the Lord. Peter is off crying somewhere because he's denied even knowing him to a junior high girl who asked. Uh, The other 10 said, oh, we're going to follow you at the Lord's Supper. We're going to follow you all the way. You can count on us. And they all abandoned him. Where are these guys? So just think, he's dying alone. He's dying like my three and a half years. Where are they all, right? And, 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 and when he's agonizing in the garden, he takes Peter, James, and John, the pillars, the guys who should be able to stay up. And he says, I feel like I'm going to die. The weight on me, guys, just be with me, be with me, please. And they, they go to sleep. He's alone. And they don't think he's king. They don't. They don't think he's coming back. They don't even think he's going to rise from the dead. When Mary Magdalene, the first witness of the resurrection, goes at Jesus' bequest, To the disciples, the men, 
and says, the Lord's alive, just like he said. They said, that's a bunch of nonsense. Quote, nonsense. So Jesus has to die knowing these guys don't think he's a king, don't think he's coming back, think this is the end of the story. The two dudes, on the, the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Jesus pulls up next to them, walking incognito, and says, what's up, guys? And they say, oh, are you the only one who doesn't know what's happening? We had a Messiah, buddy. We had this great prophet. He was so powerful. We thought he was the one. But they killed him. And Jesus like, oh, that's so sad. <laughs> so sad to hear that. Did he ever say anything about rising from the dead on the third day? So he has to die with these two thugs. And what does God the Father say? Oh, no. You're going to die with someone who gets it. With somebody who defends you. You're going to see the fruit of your agony right in front of your face. Because you're enduring not in vain. But look at him. This guy's going to be with us forever because of the work you're accomplishing on his behalf. Yes, on his friend's behalf, but his friend doesn't want it. That, to me, the incursion, the marvel of it, that this guy believes there's a king. He, believes he can see past a bloodied, dying, naked body to see a ruler of the universe. That's, that's cause to marvel. Remember, Jesus marveled at a guy who wasn't a, uh, wasn't a Jew. He said, he's a Roman guard. And he came and he said, listen, I got a sick servant at home. I know the rules here. You're not supposed to go in a Gentile's house and all of that. Let's make it easy. I know, I mean, you walk on water. You raise people from the dead. Just say the word. Just say the word. You don't have to come. Just speak it. And Jesus steps back and says, wow. Wow, the word is astounded. Jesus, the son of God, was astounded, blown away. How much more is he hanging there? And he says, boop, we got a spiritual pulse. We got a spiritual pulse on one of them, you know? And he's, he's encouraged. He's amazed he doesn't have to die alone. He's got somebody's rooting for him, and now Jesus is rooting for him. And Jesus calls back and says, you think you've got a long time to wait? At the end of the age, or your soul is going to go into this nether world? Today, this day, in a couple minutes, you and me in paradise. I love what one writer said as we wrap up here. When Jesus uses the word today, he tells us the very moment a believer uh, dies, his soul is in a happy state of safekeeping. He's alive and well and with the Lord. There's no mysterious delay. There's no sleeping of the soul. There's no purgatory between his death and state of reward. If there were such thing as purgatory or soul sleep, Jesus is incorrect by promising a dead man nearly that today he would be with Christ in paradise. Paradise doesn't sound like a place you don't want to be. Now, the thing about the word paradise, Jesus loved to use words and metaphors to describe what we can't understand uh, to help us understand, right? So he grabs a Persian word, and he says, the best way to describe the place where I'm from, the place where I'm preparing to go and take you, is the Persian word paradise. It means enclosed garden. And what those Persian kings used to do would create seven wonders of the world kind of stuff. They'd orchestrate the colors, the textures, the fragrances, the watercourses, the waterfalls, the fountains, even the uh, animal life in there. It was a place where the gate would open and it was designed to make you go, what? Wow. Jesus says, to somebody who just left somebody dead in a ditch, who had just formally cursed him at his lowest moment. He tells that dude because he's now like freaked out, like, what have I done? I want a way out. 
He tells that guy, you're going to live forever with me in a place called paradise. Bro, today. <laughs> wow. You see why it's called good news? That's the understatement of the world. Paradise says this. Let me tell you where the other guy on row 10 goes. Instead of paradise, he could go. He goes to a place called Gehenna. So interesting to me because another metaphor, the Valley of Hinnon, we drove by it. It's a park now in Jerusalem on the south side of the wall. When you go, you'll see like a little gorge. What happened there, Second Chronicles tells us, is that they worshiped the Jews for a while, the God of Molech, who required them to throw their babies into the fire to, to show their love. So the, the Second Chronicles records this. So what happened is after the prophets came in and God chastised the whole nation for doing things like that, that gorge became accursed and it became a living garbage dump where all of Jerusalem's garbage ended up and there was a smoldering, the flame never went out, it was filthy place where the corpses of animals and convicted felons would go. So he used it figuratively to say of a place called Hades, right? Think of it not as paradise. We get that picture. But think of it as Gehenna. Well, everybody then knew, oh, yeah, the, the garbage dump. The really ironic thing about this is that that dude who's unbeliever, when he dies, he's actually going to go to Gehenna. That's where they put those bodies. So how ironic is that? The worst part of all is that he was offered on row 10, if I keep going back to that metaphor, he's been offered, he had the great, he had front row seats to the Savior who's beckoning the same way he treated the other guy. And he didn't have to end up being discarded. He could have gone to paradise, but the choice is ours because we have this wonderful creator who loves us and paid the way. And you know, my, my favorite thing is not the paradise, it's the with me part. Because when I get to see that face, I mean, come on, you guys, you're going to see the face of the one who thought you up, who said, you know, in this world, I don't have a pad or I don't have a chad or I don't have a barb. I wanted to create that person, knit you together with who you are. You have a source. It wasn't mom and dad. They just got together and out you came. There was more than that. God designed you. And you're going to look at that face and go, oh, of course. You, my father. And you see the son with the scars on his hands that claimed you. And what are you going to do? When you get hugged by the God who not only created you, but, but spoke in the universe, goes... That's going to be a hug, ladies and gentlemen. That's going to be a hug. And, oh, and why? And why? Why should you be able to do that? You were on road 10. You heard the gospel. And you said, why not? Why not me? And you believed. And Jesus said, on that day, you'll be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your love and your goodness. And you made a way for us, Lord, and you've given us great access. None of us have any excuses, God. No one really does, but us more so than anyone else. So soften our hearts, Lord, and help us. If there's anybody here that's not reconciled and has going through some of the motions, nice people, but not connected. I just pray that they'd reconsider in light of eternity and in light of this passage that's tugging on their hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. There's only one caveat, one condition for God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him, right? There's only one condition. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Only one condition. You do it while you're alive. 
all bets are off when it's game over. Now, it, I mean, I've been thinking of this illustration. I've told the story before. Just a funny little thing that happened to me. And I was driving home from work every day, and I go through downtown Sebastopol, where we lived at the time. And outside a florist shop, he had a little marquee. wrote in chalk, "If your name is John, come on in for your free rose." Right. So every day he changed the name. Right. And so one day, you know, it's John, it's Robert, it's Dave, it's all the names, you know, the common names. And then one day I'm driving by and I see if your name is Ross, come on in and get your free rose. I'm like, what? Shut up. You know, <laughs> Ross is not a common name. And so I'm thinking, wow. And I pulled off like, wow. I pulled off and I pulled into Rite Aid and I, I, look, I parked kind of looking at the shop. And I'm like, wow, should I go in there? I'll get a rose and then I could tell Barbara, hey, I stopped. I was thinking about you today, <laughs> you know. It could have worked for me. So, and then I just started thinking, oh, it's kind of cheesy. I'm going to walk in there and go, hi, my name is Ross. And, you know, <laughs> uh, look at this. Here's my photo ID. You know, I just couldn't, I couldn't do it, you know. And so I drove off. And the next day it was, you know, Bob, right? And I started thinking, Oh, man, you know, maybe I should have gone in there. And I started picturing in my mind me going in and saying something like, oh, my name's Ross, and I saw it yesterday. And then I started thinking of spiritual things. In this life, you pass the marquee all the time with whosoever written out there. Come on in for your free, eternal life. As long as... As your name's on the board and the business hours and the shop is open, but can you imagine me going in the next day and saying, hey, listen, you know, I pulled over, I was this close to your doors, you know, and I just thought, you know, I, I don't know that you, I believe that you're really going to come through with that, Rose, or, or whatever. I was a little cheesy at the time, but I've had a change of heart, you know, and he'd be like, dude, is your name Bob? Because if it's not Bob... <laughs> You got 30 seconds to get out of here before I called the cops, man. You know, I'm like, give me my rose, man. You know. When your heart goes from, it's done. You're not getting your rose. He's the owner, he sets the rules. He says the doors open 24-7 while you're breathing oxygen. If you slip into, the, into eternity, then you know. Then you want to escape the consequences and come to me. That's not faith. That's not saving faith. Of course you're coming to me and saying, oh, I believe, I believe. Of course, because you don't want to experience the consequences of your unbelief. That's why well is called today. When you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. You don't know that you have another hour. Amen? So I'm going to give you that invitation. I know in a crowd like this, there's a few that, are, you know, aren't reconciled. You're right there. You're this close. But this close to eternal life is this close away. <laughs> don't do that. Don't do that. You make everybody in this room so sad not to mention Jesus. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes. So for anybody, if you're not reconciled and you've had some kind of something happen to you today, you got pulled in the right direction and finally you're stopping fighting. It's a good thing. And you want to just seal the deal now with the raised hand that says, hey, pray for me. And I'm going to say the sinner's prayer out loud with everybody. Why don't you raise your hand and say, that's me, I'm in. Let me look around here. Praise the Lord. Center, middle, anybody on the sides here? So oh, good, good. Praise God. And as far as I can tell, you're still alive, so it's good. <laughs> anybody on my right? Yeah, I thought so. Okay, another one. All right, here's the, here's the prayer out of death and into life. Dear Lord Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
I believe in you. Thank you for dying for my sins. I deserve to perish. But I take you up on your offer to save me. Fill my heart with your love and give me new life. In Christ's name, amen. Father, now for all of us, just pray a blessing. As we go our way, Lord, Passion Week, bless our service on Wednesday, Lord, as we remember and hear your scriptures recited to us and marvel at your wonderful love, we pray in Christ's name, amen. You have been listening to The Rock Podcast. Our regular services are held on Wednesday nights at 6.30 and Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you would like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.